Hey, it's the Something Something Experience Podcast, episode 34. I'm Michael John Simpson. Joining me again is badass Sith Master Assassin Kitty Brown. This week's guest is artist, animator, writer, and creative director at Arbine Inc., Brian Duffy. We sat down to talk about first world problems, chaos magic, inside Amy Schumer 12 Angry Men, the concept of spoilers, and then we got balls deep into Star Wars for about 45 minutes. Then interplanetary versus intraplanetary culture, sex versus violence, internet security, universal connectivity, and tarot. Come with me if you want to live. Here's episode 34 of the Something Something Experience. Or does the cheeseburger have you? Ooh. <laughs> Going that's, deep. That's, uh, that's something to contemplate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm trying to get rid of it if anybody wants to buy it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I've got... A whole house. We haven't hung anything yet. <laughs> Everything's moved. We've, oh wow, we hung the TV last night. I'm oh, my First hands. Time. My hands are like chafed central. I feel like I've been putting my hands through a cheese grater every day for a month. So <laughs> moving and and especially yesterday, I was putting the stereo together and my hand and all these little little hand. Little, like little. I like that the gesture for that is like nipple tweaking. Well, yeah, but it's, it's these. It is. It's exactly what it is. It's these little tiny screw things that you you unscrew. These little jacks that I put in the wall for the speakers, yeah. mm-hmm. and with wires that go through the walls, so you don't have to run cables everywhere. The yeah. cables go through the wall, so you just plug everything into a wall over here, and then over on the other side of the room, you know where the stereo is, and then the other side of the room where the speakers are, and then you plug just into the wall there. Nice. And they have these little things that have these little. Uh, they're little gold-plated speaker connectors that you unscrew, put the wire through, and then screw, and it pinches, the metal pinches so that it makes a good contact. But those things are really rough on the fingers. So the ends of my fingers, I feel like I've been like playing marathon guitar for a day and a half. (laughs) You know, it's like, ah! I feel like like Brian Adams, you know, the summer of 69. (laughs) I played until my fingers bled. Um, So, but... So we got the TV hung up last night, and it looks really nice. But right now, the center speaker, you know, first world problems. The center speaker <laughs> is on the floor. It's not up where it should be, because I was originally going to put it on the mantle. But then the TV would, at the top of the TV, would have been like seven feet off the ground. A it's speaker like, on the floor? How are you surviving? I know, I know, it's awful. <laughs> I know, I don't know, I'm making it work. Mm-hmm. Making it work. Push on, white man, push on. <laughs> <laughs> you will get optimal arrangement. Okay, well, surround well. sound. Something. <laughs> so, uh, so, Brian, tell us about yourself. Me? Oh, yes. gosh. I, um, I'm an artist and a writer and a designer, and I teach also workshops about mysticism and magic and altars and... Any, sort of stuff. any particular brand of mysticism or just all of the above? No, that's the thing is I specifically avoid a brand because even something like Chaos Magic, mm-hmm. where like that was sort of what got me into it was Grant Morrison's uh, essay Pop Magic was mm-hmm. sort of my entry into like, I was always interested in those kinds of concepts, but his angle on it that's like, you can just do it and it can be whatever you want it to be. Mm-hmm. And that's like, well, that's how people describe chaos magic, but as soon as it becomes like chaos magic and it has like the, the logo with yeah. the no circle and the arrows, mm-hmm. then it's like 
it's, and people are saying, oh, this is the right way to do sigils, this is the right way to do banishing. No. Mm-hmm. Or no. it's maybe not even strictly enforced, but it's kind of assumed. Like, right. oh, you're into chaos magic, so you must do this, this, and this. It's like, no, right. fuck that. No. Well, the whole thing um, with its creation was like, anything that is not magic is now magic. Like, have fun, kids. Mm-hmm. Isn't know? chaos the ultimate goal of chaos magic to eventually become Jeff Goldblum? <laughs> That was my goal long ago. <laughs> I tell you, speaking of Jeff Goldblum, I I was watching uh, the latest episode of Amy Schumer. She did a a, oh a, a, a brilliant, fucking brilliant, like a diamond satire of Twelve Angry Men. Homegirl yeah. is knocking it out of the oh park. Oh my and god! And you doubted her, ye of little. <laughs> when did I ever doubt her? You were like, oh, I hope she's not just going to have a stellar oh, yeah, yeah, first yeah, yeah. episode well, and then like I didn't trip doubt. off like I wasn't, he and it Peel. Wasn't, it wasn't a doubt. It was just a. I know how Comedy Central works most sure. of the time. Most mm-hmm. of the time, and uh, a lot of times with with recurring comedy shows it happened with Chappelle and it happened with Key and Peel and it happens with other sketch oriented shows where mm-hmm. the first couple episodes really are amazing and then the kind of the, 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 the sketches the, le- the best stuff is always up front and the later <laughs> stuff the one exception was late well second season of, of Chappelle's show the Rick James stuff that came in mid season it wasn't yeah. up front so mm-hmm. but yeah so I wasn't really doubting her I was just, just said I hope I hope it's not going to be that way, but okay. the the producer, co-writer, producer, and I can't remember her name right now that she has. There was a, just an article about her saying this is the woman, this is the 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 reason why Amy mm-hmm. inside Amy Schumer is a thing. Yeah, this is this, uh, Amy's collaborator and producer, and she's one of the ones responsible for for being able to do that laser focus, mm-hmm. diamond edged satire and it's just well what's great is it's been fists full of feminism like from the get go and it hasn't been letting up like I fucking love it fantastic yeah it's, it's it's so what we need and and it's so what we've needed for a long time but we especially need it right now when mm-hmm. everybody when there's such a such a douchey pushback on feminism that's been happening and right. oh, what about men's rights and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I don't, don't want to get too deep in the political stuff but 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 the 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 it just it's one of those things where it makes me so fist pump in the air yes it makes and it's 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 it it makes me so happy it makes me angry how good and yeah. how good and how happy it you know what i mean yeah. you have that thing where you see something that's so strikes a chord down the middle of you that mm-hmm. and that you emote so hard that it's almost with the same level of passion as anger. Yeah. yeah. So like, how did you do that? Like, what, like when like, you oh go to an Aikido master and he flips you on the floor and you kind of love it, but you're kind of like, what the fuck? No. <laughs> and amongst that 12 angry men was was Paul Giamatti and mm-hmm. Jeff Goldblum. And uh, the judge was um, uh, uh, Quaid, uh, uh, Dennis Quaid. And uh, Nick DiPaolo was on mm-hmm. there. And... What's his name for Mad Men? Was in it? Too? Yeah, yeah. I haven't yeah. seen. I saw clips. But... It's so goddamn good. Mm-hmm. I, I, I haven't even seen Twelve Angry Men though, so it might be lost on me. Yeah, I haven't ever watched it all the way through, but it's it's the 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 cultural zeitgeist impact. I'm mm-hmm. I'm aware oh, sure. of the of the cultural impact of it and yeah. what it was. There's a lot of movies had, like that where yeah. you, you maybe haven't seen it, but you've seen enough parodies and you've seen <laughs> enough references right. where you like exactly. everybody knows exactly. the. Twist of Citizen Kane or whatever, right. even if they exactly. haven't seen it. Exactly, which is kind of a bummer. Like you don't when you 
like go if you want if I were to sit down and watch Citizen Kane, it's not going to be suspenseful. There's that, but it also speaks to how impactful a story it is that right. it made it so deep, like into the cultural zeitgeist. It's the stain and like the carpet that you can't get out, you right. know. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's it's a and it can happen. Sometimes it happens before the movie even comes out. Like sure. it, it tripped me out when I realized that in Terminator Two, the whole first third of the movie. You're supposed to think that Arnold is coming to kill John Connor, not that he's going to save him. Like, right. And but even in the trailers, it was already revealed that oh, the Terminator's good now. Right. But in the when you if you watch the movie without any knowledge, then only seeing the first one, then it's like oh shit, the Terminator's back. He's going to kill John Connor, and then this moment is like oh shit, he's going to save him. <laughs> like I never like I only watched it recently when I noticed that like that's it's de- the story sure. deliberately paced that sure. way. Sure. But that reveal. Never landed for, Come like, for anybody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, like it. It was. It was cut off. It never had a chance. Right. To even like. Yeah, it's got that one phrase that's uttered by every hero in all the all those series. That, that you know, I mean, I think Christian Bale says it at some point in in uh, in the Terminator Salvation. And mm-hmm. I haven't seen the, in the new the, trailer. It's the girl playing Sarah Connor to Arnold Schwarzenegger's Terminator. Like she opens from, the truck and she's like, "Come with me if you want to live." Yeah, yeah, she might as well say that and then be like, "Ah, it's the I've got a bad feeling about this from Star Wars." Oh, sure. It's yeah. the uh, you know every series. I love you. I know. Yeah. Well. Well. But no. But that's not said in every single epi- every single episode. Right. But it's also one of those iconic things. Like it's on jewelry. True, it's true. on True, but, but I'm talking like, about I'm talking about the one the one almost not really but almost catchphrase that's said oh, by yeah, someone yeah. in right. each movie. I've got a bad feeling about this is said in each Star Wars movie, and in they're each, definitely going to say it in the new one, right? Mm-hmm. I'm sure somebody will say it at one point in the new one, and, yeah. And, and uh, there, there's other things like that that are uh, I'm forgetting right now, but there are those. <laughs> There are things like that. Going back to the whole, like, trailers ruining the story things, mm. like, I have a handful of friends who do not want to see anything from Episode 7. Like, they haven't watched the trailers, haven't seen, like, anything on the internet. They're just, like, completely avoiding it. Like, one so much um, to the point that during Age of Ultron, he sat on the aisle, so that way when the trailer came out, he could run out and make sure that, you know, he didn't get anything about episode seven like he just wow. he doesn't want it you know see i really respect that anyway i really respect that because it can get really <laughs> oversaturated these days especially yeah. how voracious people are for spoilers like yeah. for- i'm definitely voracious about things like as soon as anything comes out i'm like must have oh my god yeah. need more yeah. <laughs> didn't they do a study they mm-hmm. determined that people actually enjoy things more when they get spoiled despite common wisdom mm-hmm. like oh. it was like a controlled test where I mean, any controlled environment like that is suspect because everybody says they don't want spoilers, but they like put it to the test, and apparently, like in the confines of the study, people I think rated pe- their enjoyment higher when they knew what was going to happen. I think people want spoilers if they know no one else knows. If right. They want they want that to have that. The Game they of Thrones book nerds, right? They don't want <laughs> they don't want somebody else spoiling it for them. But they want to they want to know. Like be the keeper of secret knowledge. Find out and then and then have that over everybody else. Yeah, because when when this goes back a ways when when Return of the Jedi was uh, coming out, um, there were a few of us who knew what the reveal was going to be that that the confirmation of 
Darth Vader being Luke's father and and Luke and Leia being brother and sister. Mm-hmm. There were a few of us who knew that based mm-hmm. on things that we had read. That in fact we didn't have the internet back then, yeah. but we had <laughs> but we had Dynamite magazine and this and that. Yeah, and there wasn't really a thing called you know such as spoilers then. And and really these days spoilers is y e t a n o t h e r thing that that nerds can use as a power trip to exercise on other to to inflict upon other people like the people did the drive by on the uh, Harry Potter lines like Snape kills Dumbledore yeah, yeah. all the people waiting in line exactly. I love that shit yeah, it's yeah. so bad but I love that that's a well, phenomenon it's, yeah it's like a, the people who smash the PS3 in front of everybody yeah. the, the longer we go on and the and the more populated the Earth becomes comes the 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 smaller we we fish become in our in the pond and the, the therefore the less powerful we all feel and therefore any little tiny thing that we can latch on to to <laughs> scratch and scrape for some sense of personal power mm. You know, some people do that, some people don't, but it's becoming more widespread and the internet is facilitating that. Okay. And when Game of Thrones um, was happening, like, I've read the books, as I've mentioned before, but I like to be the asshole nerd who gives spoilers, but in a way that people don't believe them. Like, <laughs> with the Red Wedding, um, before it happened, I was like, oh, you guys know, like, Rob Stark is a werewolf, right? Like, that's what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, he's he's a werewolf. Yeah. Fake spoilers. But that's it's, great. it's kind of book accurate because, you know, they end up sewing his wolf's head on right, his body right, and stuff like that. Right. And, like... They're not doing um, Lady Stoneheart in the show, no. but like you know, I used to be like, oh yeah, Catelyn Stark comes back as a zombie because you know she, she does, does, but no one ever believed me. Or right. like you know, Tyrion <laughs> runs away and joins the circus, which is again something that happens in the book that they're not doing in the show. But right. like, I like to do that, give spoilers um, that people will never believe, and they're like, oh haha, Kitty, you're so funny, and then and eventually like... it happens. <laughs> yeah. I'm not a fan of the sort of aggre- like the aggressive like people trying to sneak into the set and take photos and things like because there's there's because the there's an integrity of the writers the leak, and the directors the leak thing the yeah. The, the yeah people stealing information some or or gaining information or 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 plot information or character information by by subterfuge or, or otherwise you know not savory means yeah well, yeah, I, think, I don't think that's right. For me personally, if I had access to anything from the new Star Wars movie, I wouldn't show it to anyone. I'd be like, this is mine. Exactly. I earned it. Like, exactly. blah, blah, yeah. blah. You guys didn't go through what I went through to get this. Right, right. <laughs> I've gotten to the point in my with my fandom where I'm I, like, if I get something revealed, I get something revealed. And I don't I don't care. There's occasion when I'll say, don't say anything about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's usually only to certain people who tend to just be like, I saw a thing, blah, 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 blah. And I I really only have a a small handful of people who are like that, where I feel like I have to say, please don't say anything about it. It's definitely Mm -hmm. a type. Because I haven't seen it yet. (laughs) But it's it's few and far between. And for the most part, I'm like, oh, okay, cool. You know, whatever. Like like finding out that, that Gwendolyn Christie is playing the silver... The, the chrome yeah, trooper. Yeah, Captain Phasma. Oh my god, that's amazing! amazing. I, can't, yeah. I cannot wait to see that. It was so funny too, because when they released the very first trailer, a bunch of um, friends on my feed like who were girls were like, I just want one female trooper. Just give me one goddamn female <laughs> trooper. And it's like, here's Gwendolyn! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here's Phasma. All my dreams are coming yeah, true. Yeah, we were, we were gushing about that on uh, Two T's in a Pod on, on Tuesday. That was... That was 
that was pretty awesome. Yeah, we're we're all really really stoked about that. Mm-hmm. I totally thought the Chrome Trooper was fake when they leaked that. I was well, just like, we thought, yeah, it was Boba Fett. Uh, we thought, yeah, you said that. What what if that's Boba Fett? I'm like, wow, what a great idea that here, you know, Boba Fett escapes the Sarlacc pit yeah. and is still hell bent on, on bringing down so even though Darth Vader's <laughs> dead, there's no more. There's no one. There's no one to fulfill the contract yeah. Doesn't matter anymore. for anymore. <laughs> it's a personal vendetta now. Yeah. Right. Well, I don't know if it's canon that uh, Boba Fett is a Mandalorian or if he isn't, but if he is a Mandalorian, that totally makes sense why he's still going after Han Solo. Sure. Like, it's part of the culture, you yeah. know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's that never give up thing. Yeah. There's other. There's other. That's a. That's actually kind of a trope. The, the henchman, henchman to the death kind of yeah. thing. That even if your master, or you know, or the person who hired mm-hmm. you dies, you still fulfill the yeah. contract because well, that's just what you do. The Mandalorians themselves, like they're a race of warrior nomads, and they take their shit really seriously. Like they live by the Raisonare, which is like these six rules. Like. You have to speak Mandoa. You have to raise any of your kids as Mandalorians. Uh, battle and armor, um, super important. You have to um, do the bidding of the Mandalor, who is like the leader of all the clans, like whatever they should ask. And also, interestingly enough, the Mandalor can be a man or a woman, and Mandoa, the language, doesn't recognize gender. Like cool. it's a gender neutral Gender-less language. Genderless language. Yeah. That's pretty um, snazzy. Where did all this lore come from? Was Extended it a, universe. Right, but which... Was it like a book series or a comic? Um, or? It was books. A little bit of it is in Knights of the Old Republic. Video and game, then yeah. there was an article... Um, that someone wrote, I can't remember her name, but it was like Mandalorians, people and culture. And it gets into that. But like, you know, they get (laughs) into a lot of this, like in the comics, like I said, in Knights of the Old Republic, stuff like that. So, yeah. I mean, obviously according to, to Lucas's canon, uh, you know, Boba is a clone of, of Django, a, a special clone that was, was not enhanced or not, he was allowed to grow at a regular rate and all, you know, all, this yeah. stuff, all the shit that you was can, in there. You can join the Mandalorians. Like, you can join a mm, tribe mm, and become mm. a Mandalorian. Like during It's not the a Mandal- race thing. It's a tribal thing. Yes, absolutely. Gotcha. So, like, during the Mandalorian Wars, they would capture a lot of prisoners and be like, guess what? You're Mandalorians now. <laughs> like, convert. <laughs> right on. You know? That stuff fascinates me, though, because, like, first of all, no one says the word... Mandalorian in any of the movies, yeah. And, like, it, it, but it, it did emerge as like, like supplement to the movies. There's always like official word about what this is, what that is, and all mm-hmm. like all we had, what, like coming out of the reveal of Boba Fett as a character in Empire and Jedi, it was like, and people like the little tidbits, like, oh yeah, Mandalorian armor, <laughs> I, like, it, it, but like Lucas had, he just came up with the name, like, yeah, it's Mandalorian armor, and then that's it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to adjust my glasses in a nerdy fashion and say, actually, the first appearance of Boba Fett was during the uh, the televised Star Wars holiday oh, yeah. special. <laughs> um, yeah, there was, there was a saying. reveal. There was a, in two two ways in in '78 when the when the the Star Wars holiday special happened, and uh, you could uh, save. Kenner proofs of purchase right, with the tabs rocket launcher from the back of uh, action figure cards and send them in with I think it was like five dollars for shipping and handling and you could get a Boba Fett action figure before Empire was released. That was huge. Mm. So, but Boba Fett was a thing from from early on, and there was also a lot of rumors that Boba Fett's armor was was like early um, stormtrooper armor as mm. well, and. Uh, 
but you know we that's kind of been dashed to bits with uh, the 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 prequel trilogy but yeah something there was some some form of alchemy that happened that Lucas managed with Boba Fett he yeah. managed to ignite the imaginations of fans everywhere and Boba Fett I think is hands down one of the top three two three characters and for a lot of yeah. people the best character in the Star Wars universe and it's nuts because he's on screen for 30 seconds he, is, he, <laughs> does, he does nothing he, he barely speaks he barely says two words yeah. and and he's only it's but but the ship is cool and the mm-hmm. outfit's cool and the the you know the the rope the the grappling hook thing and the wrist is cool and the wrist yeah. rocket yeah. thing is cool and the jetpack's cool and it's just all this he's stuff that high like 20 times concentrated there's cool. just yeah 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 it's just for, there's something about boba fett that is mm-hmm. just so amazing and well, i'm really hoping that the rumors are true that yeah, there's going there to be there was an boba article fett release they said that it's official story. he's you know escaped the sarlacc pit he's going to be in the force awakens so Gosh. praying that's true like when it when i saw that article and it came out and everything i was like oh my god like i was at work and i was like everybody everybody stop like <laughs> hang on a sec there's something going around that Boba Fett's going to be in the new movie, and literally the Who's whole Boba art Fett? team stopped. <laughs> <laughs> like that would ever happen on an art team? Come yeah, on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's like the. I wonder if that coolness comes from the limited information. Like the, it's mm. almost like you you don't want to meet your heroes. You don't want to like the the mystery of like something like Lost. Like everybody's idea for what it was. The like they felt better about it than the actual reveal. So it's like that air of mystery is mm, what mm-hmm, mm-hmm. creates that excitement around a sure, character like sure. Boba Fett. It's mm-hmm. like you get to... Everybody gets to attach their own imagination to it. It's like, oh, what's he like? Like, what's under yeah, the like, yeah. what's under the helmet? Like, <laughs> and that's the appeal. So, like, and I, I, that's what interests me about the impulse to take, like, oh, yeah, it's Mandalorian armor. And that that's it. And then to take that was a good take, George Lucas, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's that, that's all like that's all that was officially said. And then to have that become like what thousands of years of history and a mm-hmm. whole culture and a language and like these like whole dynastic like, right yeah because change, people like, people who wrote run with who wrote novels yeah. and video games they just ran with it yeah. and whoever it it, it's like anybody in in that expanded universe whoever has the right friends in the publishing world and gets their chance to like take this slice and make something up, then that becomes, like, the thing that everybody knows. Sure, it's like, sure. But it's just, a, like, to this whole concept of universe building is so fascinating to me because it's, like, the movies are so, like, contained as this, like, this myth. And it's, like, and then to, like, take that myth and extrapolate it into, like, this... Ten times the amount of content, mm-hmm. maybe a hundred times the amount. Sure, of content. sure, right, sure. But one thing that's good about the extended universe is it really opens up a lot of new characters for people who weren't represented in, say, the original trilogy or even the prequels. You know, you get a lot more uh, female characters. You get yeah. a lot more characters of color. You yeah. get, you know, a lot more like 
um, characters who are kind of neutral. Like you have, you know, the Force switches who they're not Jedi, they're not Sith, they're just kind of like off doing their own thing, like using the Force and keeping Rancors as pets and riding them, you know? Or like um, the Mandalorians, like they're cool and they're badass and anybody, literally anybody can be a Mandalorian. So that opens up all these possibilities for, you know, kids who didn't see themselves represented Mm. in the movies per se. Knock it off! Cat fight. Um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, because I mean, yeah, well, there was definitely... Yeah, when when Star Wars and Empire and Jedi, when those movies were created, Hollywood was still in a very white yeah. period, you know. And, and I mean, Lando you know. was so like groundbreaking, and it's like, oh, one person of color. Yeah, <laughs> there's one. There's two women in the whole universe. Actually, there mm-hmm. were three that actually had speaking roles, mm-hmm. and then, uh, but yeah, one person of color. Well, they did a pretty good job with The Force Awakens. The main characters are a girl and a black dude. So. I've yeah. been saying that for a very long time. I was very happy about yeah. that. Yeah. Well, even um, some of the cartoons, which are technically canon, you know, they're doing a great job. Like uh, Star Wars Rebels, um, there's three human characters, and they all have darker brown skin. There's Canon, who's a Jedi. There's Ezra, who's like his little Padawan. And there's Sabine, who is a Mandalorian. And none of them look white. Like, uh, Sabine has purple and orange hair, and Canon and Ezra have, like, kind of dark blue hair, but, like, their skin is darker. Yeah. So, again, like, this opens up, like, That's good. a bunch of characters yeah. for, you know, kids who didn't see themselves represented sure. in the Star Wars universe sure. previously. Yeah, representation is huge. It's so important. Yeah. I do love that, like, this the, the sort of assumed impulse for, like, this limited series of movies that gives you a peek into this universe, and you want to extrapolate that universe... And, like, there's that impulse we have to make a new canon or an EU canon when it'd be, like, there there might be a whole, like, separate alternate universe where Mm -hmm. Star Wars comes out and then it's just, like, a world of fan fiction. And everybody's contradicting each other, coming Mm -hmm. up with, like, that's kind of what happened with... The um the material that was overwritten by the prequels yeah in the like, EU was like Boba everybody Fett had their own ideas about the previous stuff and then it all got thrown out but the like if if the, there was this world of everyone's everyone has their own idea about what happened after Return of the Jedi and there, there's just like this ecosystem of alternate timelines but instead mm-hmm. they like like that was a, like almost an unprecedented thing for them to sit down and say okay we're gonna like hold this loose container. With Lucasfilm, like they they didn't have so much. Now they weren't as robust as they are now with the Holocron Keeper and the like mm-hmm. Council of mm-hmm. Storytellers. Mm-hmm. But it's just like we are going to say this is official. This is canon because we said so. And it's like the Thrawn trilogy. Okay, and then everybody treats it like oh shit. It's like the next three movies in book form. And that so. But then Timothy Zahn, by making those, he's just like locked it in. But it's like anything else that you thought happened after Turn of the Jedi. Not allowed anymore. Uh, because I said so, because I'm Timothy Zahn, and I was in the right place at the right time. And now everybody has to extrapolate all their other stories from that. Like sure. Jason and Jaina Solo, you're not allowed to yeah. say, like, oh, maybe they had Mara other Jade kids. Like isn't it, around anymore. Like, it, so oh, yeah. someone's... People are basically writing all this fan fiction just, like, with the shotgun effect of, like, I have all these ideas about what could happen in the Star Wars universe. Sure. And then there's, like, this, this sort of kingmaker who's just, like, canon. But then mm-hmm. now, now the movies are coming out, and it's going erasing all of that too. Yeah. It's all gone. But yeah, it, it, for a while, yeah. Back to what you were saying about you know having to know somebody. I I I know several 
very angry nerd who <laughs> wrote stuff and wanted it accepted as what was EU canon <laughs> oh, no. years ago and are still just boiling inside about it. And yeah. I, I always said, hey, you know, it's it's George Lucas's you know thing. He created it. It's his universe. He can say yes or no to whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, it shouldn't be that way. It's like, My well, ideas are <laughs> superior. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it was just it's like... Well, maybe, not, and then I, I didn't say that to them. I'm like, well, maybe your, maybe your stuff you wrote sucks. I mean, did right? they make the appropriate sacrifices at the altar of I Lucas? I, I hear know. it's like at least five tauntauns, it, you know, to get <laughs> an audience with him. Yeah. So. It, is, yeah. it is also absurd to think that there is a single decider who's like, this is canon, this is not. Because mm-hmm. you, the movies themselves, like, making those movies is like trying to lasso a hurricane and, like, you, you look at the, like, there's this great book, The Secret History of Star Wars, that's all mm-hmm. about the early scripts mm-hmm. and the early mm-hmm. treatments. Right. And even, like, in post-production, Star Wars was a mess. Oh, and yeah. And it was, like, Luke's wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marsha? Martha? Um, right. Hang Shit. on. This is what the internet's for. <laughs> that's what, I love that snarky Tumblr post. It's like, you know who IG-88 is, and you don't know about this, about Luke's wife, who... Like it was basically responsible for what Star Wars is. Speaking of, she was like speak, real quick. Written out, real yeah. quick side note on Marcia. 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 Speaking of of M A R C I A. The speaking of the the panel of of uh, uh, bounty hunters from <laughs> from the end of uh, toward the end of uh, Empire, um, Bosk the the reptilian. Oh yeah, yeah. His outfit. Was a leftover wardrobe piece from Doctor Who. Oh shit! Sixties um, era Doctor <laughs> it, Who. It looks like a like a rebel pilot though. It's like a like a yellow rebel pilot it's like dark, t- but it's yellow. kind of dark mustardy yellow yeah. kind of mm-hmm. thing. And that that's a, that that exact outfit was worn by some you know space pilot guy in Doctor Who. I love it. So yeah. technically. Gallifrey and that whole universe could be somewhere in like the outer rim Star Wars territories. Crossovers, yeah. Yeah. Well, I would, I would actually. My perspective is somewhere in the Doctor Who universe. (laughs) Is the galaxy far, far away? The galaxy for Star Wars (laughs) exists somewhere in the universe that you know. It'd be so funny if, like, they mentioned that on Doctor Who. Somebody's like, hey, what about those guys? We don't talk to them. <laughs> they're, they're doing their... We, we just leave them alone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they don't interfere in their, their intergalactic battle. Yeah, they, they've got their own thing. We're, just, we're gonna be over here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that's what really amazes me, though, that, like, by seeing this timeline of, like, this is what happened in the Star Wars universe. A, mm. B, C, these characters, this person lived here, died here. Chewbacca gets a planet smashed into him. That definitely happened. Like <laughs> all these things, people decide this happened, as if there's like this authority. But it's really just it's a bunch of people sitting in a room throwing out ideas. They didn't and even know if sticks, Vader was going to you know? be Luke's father and like the lead up. They're just like spitballing, and then they hit on a great idea, and it's like so we got to roll with it. And then the clock's ticking, and it's like you got to make the movie. And maybe if they had sat in the writers' room for a little longer, then we'd have a whole different movie. But then it's like the the whims and chance conversations that happen between a team of writers becomes like this like literal alternate universe historical timeline that people follow with the same rigorous detail and know more about it than they know actual historical timelines that happen on this planet in the real yeah. world it's yeah. like to take imagination and turn it into uh his like semi-historical fact sure mm-hmm. it was just a bunch of people like 
bullshitting and coming up with ideas. Yeah. And then, like, oh, we got a publishing deadline, so we might as well run with that. Mandalorian's Mandalorian Empire, sure, why not? <laughs> well, even though even though the movies, the new movies, are going to be wiping out the extended universe, thank God, oh, expanded universe canon. I discur. It I like the looks like though that that from what you know what we're seeing is. Um, Little bits of that extended universe yes. are, are bleeding their way into what is going to be Kylo Ren's canon. mask yes. looks exactly like Darth Revan's, and interestingly enough, uh, Darth Revan's mask used to belong to the Mandalore, who was a woman who he defeated, ending the Mandalorian Wars. So, right. again, <laughs> some more. And didn't you EU say that the, the kind of German longsword lightsaber yes. was a thing in, yes. in, the, in the extended universe as well? well so. A little bit. Um, yeah. They have different lightsabers in the extended universe. I had never come across one that looked like a German longsword until right. um, episode 7 which totally lost my shit over that yeah yeah um, but yeah like in in the EU um, Darth Revan's mask was the Mandoa's and now Kylo Ren's mask looks exactly like Darth Revan so I think they're picking and choosing and pulling little bits from the EU and like putting them in there so that's nice to see yeah. there's a lot to draw from yeah like you can in like you just have your pick of the litter you can just salad bar your way through the other mm-hmm. like, oh, that's pretty good this sucks like, <laughs> leave this out yeah my my only my only kind of like hiccup with the with the german longsword looking lightsaber is on a german long an actual german longsword you've got the blade and then the hilt comes out that's not like a blade a blade hilt you know the part of the hilt I mean, I'm sure that could be done, but mm-hmm. it's not something that's. It's meant there to protect your hand and, and to yeah. keep your well, hand from sliding up the blade. But it's, you can also use it to, as as someone who has been taking German longsword classes for the past three years, you can also <laughs> use the hilt to catch your opponent's blade, and then you have control over. Right, it. exactly, true. You know? um, but it, it's meant to to, to prevent their blade uh, from come sliding down and, and hurting yes. your hand, much right. like a, a hilt or a, a uh, or the um, the basket on. On a, on a claymore or that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. But with the lights, th- that's the thing. It's not the, on the on a German longsword. It's not bladed, and it's mm-hmm. not something that if you touch, it's gonna you know Melt harm you. Yeah. <laughs> but on the lightsaber, when you got two bits of lightsaber coming out the side, you can fuck yourself up with that. You well, know. I it's, mean, it's funny that you mentioned that because there's a couple like German longsword masters who have put out videos doing like. All kinds of crazy moves, you know, with their sword, and they put paint on the hilt to see, like, you know, if it would touch them or anything. Ah, gotcha. You know, and so, like, at the end of it, they're like, like all the cool, crazy moves you can do, and at the end, they're like, Nothing. no paint on my well, arms. Well, yeah, true. And obviously, if you if you have that thing, you'd be skilled enough to use it. But I'm just if you had you the know, force, if you had <laughs> that too, with proper training that and everything. Too. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, um, I need to ask my teachers. I'm like, so. What's your opinion? Because like <laughs> they definitely have an opinion. <laughs> oh yeah, they definitely have an opinion. And um, the school that I train at, they're very into historically accurate judicial German dueling because that's what those swords were used for. It was so like you know, if people had a disagreement, you could be like, "All right, fight it out until one of you dies." That way, we don't have this like generations wide conflict going on for hundreds of years, like the you know McCoys and the right. redneck the whatever. Thank you. <laughs> it, you know, in essence, those two bits of lightsaber for the hilt it would be as if if those two pieces of metal on the hilt were red hot or yeah. red or white hot if they were you know heated and you know you that could, is an interesting you question could, if the lightsaber has radiant heat. or you know <laughs> hang on okay so you're supposed to hold it 
something like this isn't going to work, but like your hands a little good, good visual space work here for the podcast. Yeah, yeah, but your hands are a little lower than the actual hilt. Like, I'm actually going to take take a picture of this so that our viewers at home, yeah, so for the viewers at home, yes, (laughs) yeah. Right. It just fucking looks cool, man. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but then show, yeah, and then show the. Let's do the. Um, and to be fair, the the lightsaber itself on, is a devastatingly the with my name impractical on it so weapon. Anyway. Yeah. Nice. Good. Yeah. <laughs> cool. All right. So we took a picture of that. That will be up on the in the in the blog post. The show notes. <laughs> the show notes. Yeah. So um. <clears throat> but uh, like you can choke up on the hilt too, but sure, like if you're sure. Just, but you if know. you got, I mean, and that's the thing on it on the one in the in there, there is a little probably like two inch bit that's that's emitter or mm-hmm. that's you know that's covered right on the other side of the hilt, and then it comes out from there. So right. if they were to choke up on it, they'd be hitting metal and not light blade, mm-hmm. you know, light yeah. lightsaber blade. So you know, but uh, but still, it would be one of those things where you bring your sword up and you're like, ah, oops, you know. Yeah, I can't well, wait for the frame by frame analysis of the lightsaber duel in episode seven. It's like, it's ah, gonna see. happen. Like when we're waiting in class, we're supposed to hold our sure, swords like sure. this, and it's oh, you know, you choked up. melt your your wrists off. But that there was a picture. I think it was in Dynamite magazine. One of there's one of the production stills or something, but it shows Luke standing. Holding his lightsaber with two hands up in front of him, kind of like you know, with the with the arms bowed, you know, mm-hmm. bowed the elbows bowed out, and the thing like this, and his thumb is is covering, looks like it's going into the light beam. Oops, <laughs> and, it, and it shows him holding it like that, and it's just like, come on. <laughs> Actually, if he were to hold his lightsaber like that, then his fingers would get cut off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We had a thing when we were kids, we talked about that too, when we were, you know, 10 or 12 or whatever, and he's like, well, then we, we came up with this thing where, like, your own lightsaber, you're, because of the force, your own lightsaber is attuned to you and can't hurt you. Mm. So you couldn't kill, you know, cut off your own hand or, or accidentally, you know, if you hit yeah. yourself with your own lightsaber. Well, you're supposed to make your lightsabers. Like, this is yeah. another thing yeah, yeah, in yeah, the yeah. EU, is you're supposed to find the crystal and make the fucking lightsaber yourself. Yeah, yeah. So. well, in, in the, the novelization, the Alan Dean Foster novelization of Return of the Jedi, uh, the first chapter is Luke, you know, this dark hooded figure in a black cloak mm. goes into, into this whole, he basically, Luke goes to Obi-Wan's hovel and out uh, beyond the Dune Sea and builds his lightsaber and basically goes and finds all these lightsaber parts at, at uh, uh, you know, Kenobi's little mm-hmm. house and builds his own lightsaber. Yeah. And he found, apparently he found a crystal somewhere for it that, you know, that's why his is green and more yeah, yeah. seen was blue and red at that point. Um, but, that was shot. Huh? That was shot. What was shot? Luke building a lightsaber. Oh, oh yeah. Oh. yeah right. He's like, fidd- you ever right. seen yeah, He's yeah. like fiddling it with it yeah, a little bit. yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so bad. Yeah. It's, it's like because it was originally ten the seconds, novelization like, was mm-hmm. based on the original script. Right. Yeah. It was a novelization of the script, and a lot of the Star Wars novelizations, other than the first book, the first book that George Lucas wrote, um, which was an expanded version, it was thicker. It was. Longer. And Alan Dean Foster ghost wrote that. Too. <laughs> right. 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 He did. He did. But but 
a lot of what happens in the prequel tw- trilogy holds true, a lot of it, not all of it, holds mm-hmm. true to what we always heard, that the reason why Darth Vader's in his suit is because and can't breathe and needs all that machinery, he because the, the, he and Kenobi had a yeah. fight on the edge of a volcano. We didn't <laughs> know it was a volcanic planet. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love that that was, like, the one thing that, like, the because, the, I mean, I, like, We've talked about this. Mm-hmm. Me being like I'm like so such an orthodox that like I completely disavow the EU and the prequels. There's only the three, mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned. Everything else is just made up bullshit. Uh, it's great bullshit, but still, it's like that's the first three is all there is. Brian, the orthodox he one, you were talking about. So you, you've got a lightsaber with payas on it. <laughs> payas, the little curly hair that. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, um, no offense to Jedi or Jews anywhere. So. <laughs> sure. But uh, in in the wait, what were you saying was revealed in the prequels that? Oh well, the whole thing of of the reason why Darth Vader ended up oh, the way yeah. he has more machine than man is because of the light the the lightsaber duel between him and Ben Kenobi right. and their last meeting. And we knew that, and we like, knew that that was going to happen because there were actually pit, there were there were pictures yeah. of that battle. But our Darth Vader was already in his armor in that battle, right. and um, that but the, the, this battle happened on the edge of a volcano. We didn't know it was going to be a volcanic planet. I was thinking about this the other day. <laughs> Real quick, sidetrack, yeah. nerdness. <laughs> do we have to... How, how, what? I was going to say, do we have to use our nerd voices you for this? use our nerd voices. No. <laughs> how the fuck is there any oxygen on Hoth? Oh, mean? shit. It's a frozen planet. You're There's right. no plant life producing oxygen. Where the fuck is the atmosphere coming from? The force. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking about the this the other day. I'm like, okay, there's animals. There's 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 a, there's a, an ecosystem with mm-hmm. with predatory animals. Yeah. The wampas and, and, and tauntauns. tauntauns. Yeah. Tauntauns, you would assume, are not are are, are herbiv- her- herbivorous. Yeah. Where are they getting the herbs? Where are they getting the the plant life to eat from? That's a frozen frozen world, a frozen fucking ice world. Where's the oxygen coming from? Where's the plant life to feed? There has to be an ecosystem. Yeah. You can't just have meat eaters eating meat eaters. There's got to be somewhere an original thing. You know, it's like. Mm-hmm. You know, meat eaters, meat eaters eating meat, other meat eaters is like a, a perpetual motion machine. It can't exist. You know, right. it can't. You know, it'd be cool. Somebody's playing the Halloween theme out there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it'd be cool if there was just like you know a planet, and it was just like all ice. You know. Yeah. Well, that's what. <laughs> and that's it. That's <laughs> right. That's <laughs> as far as they got with it. Right. That's as far as they got with it. You would be cool. And you if know, they had a planet, and it was just like. All desert, right? <laughs> or right. Mustafar, which is nothing but volcanoes, right? Or right. a planet, you know, just like all city, like like the planets in Star Wars sort of take the place of like regions of sure, one. yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And, I, is very and much I've a had a lot of thoughts about that too, and that applies to Doctor Who as well. Is on Earth we have continents sure. and on and with different regions and different climates and different everything and in those continents we have countries and in those countries we have cities and in those cities in each country each country has a culture each city has a culture and there's different cultures but in Doctor Who, when they go to a planet, it's just that planet. It's right. not the city on that planet. Right. There is a city on that planet, but one assumes that that whole planet, they're just visiting a planet. Right. When really they're visiting a city in a continent on a on a or a city in a in a state in a continent on a you know blah blah blah. blah. But really, everywhere that people go, 
it's just the whole planet is one government. The whole planet is one people. And, you know, maybe it's part of the big, you know, uh, conspiracy of the, you know, one, one nation, you know, (laughs) one world, whatever, but but, (laughs) whatever, but the, 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 and Star Trek, same thing. You go to a planet. It's not cities on, and it's planets warring other planets. It's not countries warring other countries on, on a planet. Hang on a sec. Hang on a sec. Um, I hate, to mention the fucking Gungans, but those are two separate cultures in the prequels. Like you have That's the people the only time in Naboo, the and then you have the Gungans who like live kind of Under the amphibiously. Water, like, also on ta- no, no, yeah, no, not on Tatooine. What was the planet? The Gungans in the uh, no, the Gungans are on Naboo. Naboo They're Naboo. just Sorry, on Naboo. Right, right. Yeah, I couldn't like, and it. there's the city and the palace where the queen and the right. senate and blah blah blah. All right, that right. are, and then the Gungans so, yeah, have Naboo's their like the only planet in the Star Wars city. universe where we've seen two different cultures on one planet. Yeah. And well, there's some in the EU as well. Right. But sure, sure. Sure. That's EU, but, but and it's apparently no longer canon. A common trope. In science fiction, yes, even highbrow science fiction, yeah. the Martian Chronicles—it's the whole planet, the right. society, the people—they live inside the planet Mars. It's all one culture. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, there's no states and wars and stuff. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, fantasy that's kind of somewhat alternate Earthbound, like Game of Thrones, high mm-hmm. fantasy stuff. High fantasy stuff—you got. Nations yeah. warring nations. Well, okay. It's confined, cultures confined warring to one cultures, planet. Yeah. But everybody, right, confi- fantasy is generally. Example to a of planet. different cultures in some really awesome science fiction where it's not just like a planet. Ursula K. Le Guin's The Dispossessed. Like, yes, there are two cultures. One is on the moon and one is on the actual planet. But within that planet, there's definitely a hierarchy of cultures. Like, it's kind of like they have the 1% super rich mm-hmm. and then they have like mm-hmm. really poor people and then they have like a slave class and everything. So that's an example of different cultures on a planet. There were a couple times in Star Trek The Next Generation where they went to a planet where two different factions on the same planet were warring and that mm-hmm. kind of thing happened. You yeah. can have but, two, but three. Oh, let's but not, for let's the not most part, it was planet versus planet sure. when, there were, when there was conflicts. Mm-hmm. Those, those cultures were planetary, not not in, not intraplanetary. Intra? I think in Star Trek's case, it is, like, there might be this assumption that it takes a Maybe not a global culture, but a global government in order to get to the point where you have a war. Sure, drive. sure. But even so, I think there, the the imagination and also the time to tell a story can only go so far where it's like these situations where either it's a 20-minute sequence of a Star Wars movie where they're on this crazy new planet and then it's like a, an hour-long episode of Star Trek where it's like you... And it's event, Adventure of the Week. They're not going to stay and mm-hmm. hang out on the one planet. So for... Like, I mean, you, you can't call it lazy storytelling because it's, it's just like the practicality, the basic practicality of it. It's like we show up at a planet and we're going to interact with this culture. Well, you're also but, talking um, storytelling for movies versus storytelling for TV episodes. But either way, you only books. have so much yeah. time, right? Yeah. You, you, so, like, so, if you were, if you although, made, made up Earth in its current state for science fiction, how could you, like, even in a series of novels, you would never even touch the complexity and diversity of culture on Earth. You'd have to, like, mm-hmm. pick, like, five or six. Sure, sure. But in a series of novels, a big series of novels where you, you're talking about different cultures and stuff, like Dune, mm-hmm. different, all the cultures are planetary. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, you got the Harkonnens here, and you and got the Atreides, Atreides there, yeah. and you got, you know, the Getty Prime, and you got, you know, <laughs> Arrakis, and so it's, you have all these different planets, you know, you got the Fremen on Arrakis. So, but again, it's a planetary thing. It's not cultures within. There also were times on Doctor Who, 
uh, where you go someplace and people are being oppressed by rulers, like you got a working class and a ruling class mm-hmm. on the same planet. But again, it's not country versus country. It's all right. within one culture. Um, but it's always, yeah, you just show up to a planet and it's what... It's like, like you know, you show up on a planet and you think a planet is so huge and so big <laughs> and you could you could go to one... You, doctor, The doctor and his companion could land on... Land in Africa and completely miss what's going on in the United States, or or you know land on Greenland and completely miss on what's going on in Iceland, and you know that close, or yeah. land in Croydon and forget and not be aware of what's going on in Cardiff. But mm-hmm. it seems like wherever he lands, the, with the, the, they explain that uh, Neil Gaiman explained that that the TARDIS always took him where he needed to be. Yeah. So you're not only going to the right planet, you're not only going to the right time in that planet's history, but you're always going to also going to the right spot on that planet to be mm-hmm. to get land right in the middle of what's going on that you need to solve so but that's a common thing uh with with science fiction and you're dealing with other cultures yeah so it 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 appears to kind of follow through Mm -hmm. we've only got the one planet as a reference right use that's why we use planets as placeholders for countries like countries cultures Mm -hmm. right right yeah all we know. <laughs> but how the fuck are they breathing on Hoth? I ask you. Come on. I mean, there was no air on the on the asteroid where they were inside of the space slug. Come on. That's what's so. That's what I love about it. Is it's so tantalizing that this is a real universe that exists because the world building is so intricate and it looks mm-hmm. so lived in. And it's just like when when you see it for the first time and you're a kid, it's just like I want to live there. Yeah. Right? Like, right. like it's real. Like you can go and like. The opening line is absolute perfection because it's like if they didn't have the opening line, then it's just like, "Hey, look at this crazy movie we made up." Mm-hmm. But then to open it with a long, t- first of all, a long, long time, time ago, ago like, mm-hmm. pe- like it, it, it flipped people's brains because this is they, all in the past. They were so used to science fiction being our future, right. it, it, more specifically, our future. Like, oh, the, Earth, pe- the people of Earth. Like, <laughs> Like all that shit, it, like even Flash Gordon. I, I never watched much Flash Gordon, but that was like yeah, it was Earth- the future. It was the twenty yeah. fourth century, something like that. Mm-hmm. So right, it, it, Buck like, Rogers, same thing. And so, actually, no, Flash Gordon's on another planet. It's it's current time, different planet. Ah, mm. but even even then, it's like like wow, it's the future. Look at all this fancy future shit, and then to flip that and be like, because it's. It show the fact that that caught on so well, and the fact that it like had such an impact. Like it shows, it shows up right around the time that we're really starting to understand how unfathomably old the universe is, and yeah. how like not that unique our planet is. Sure. Mm-hmm. And it's just just probably entering the public consciousness right. on a wider scale that sure. there could have been like civilizations billions of years ago. Doing the right. same shit that we're doing, right? And more technologically advanced than we are, right. and that was like—I mean, there's even such some, a new idea. There's even been speculation that there were cultures that we have yet to have discovered on Earth that yeah. were more advanced than we were, that we just haven't found evidence for yet. That because well, the billions and that of years kind of gets into like the racism of archaeology during mm-hmm. the Victorian era. I mean, like that's well documented that uh, the English used to smash the noses off of Egyptian monuments because they're like, mm, this doesn't look white enough. Better fix that. Yeah, that nose troubles me. (laughs) Well, and even just like little statues, like anything they would find, they'd just be like, nope. Yeah, yeah. And then, like, oh, white people. Yeah. (laughs) 
So when we when we realize it's like oh this could have happened and it's a place you could live in it could be real then it's like we we want to like needle down into all the <laughs> and she's like oh the lightsaber wouldn't work like that or oh you can't breathe on Hoth or what sure. like mm-hmm. the, and I think the the impulse behind that is like I want to fucking live in the Star Wars universe I want yeah like there's, <laughs> there's this hunger to be like you don't even have to be the hero because it's incredibly stressful to be Luke Skywalker because mm-hmm. it's like. You don't want to have to deal with that shit. You just maybe want to be you a, just want to be a, 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 like a spice like traitor. I just like I want because I want to I be think, a Mandalorian. Ultimately, <laughs> like the huge appeal is that these people are getting into fucking spaceships and going into light speed, and it's not a big deal to them. But yeah, but mm-hmm. for them, as, as you said before, it's a, yeah. it's mundane. Well, and right. this came mundane. from a conversation that we had online, and later a conversation that I had with Phil, and later on the podcast. The podcast. Right. But yeah. Like, um, the thing about Star Trek is it's stuff that hasn't happened yet. It's, like you said, our future, and it's, you know, technologically advanced. It's something that we could potentially achieve, and we have. Like, we have iPads and, you know, like, smartphones and things like that. But with Star Wars, the cool part of it is that all of that technological shit is so mundane because actual magic is there that people know how to use. Right, right. And it's interesting that... You look at the original trilogy. There's very little um, civilian life at all. I mean, you have Moss mm-hmm. Eisley, where it's like all the schizos hang out, but there's not just like the uh, the Tashi Station deleted scene is like the closest Star Wars ever got to just people like hanging out. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's like watching the movie is like there's no one living a normal life. They have any evidence of it. like they're all, they're all there in the background, but like the. That's why the I love the Tashi Station deleted scene so much because yeah, like all these kids just, just like hanging out. shooting the shit on their fucking ridiculous space planet. Sure, where <laughs> sure. like and where where that, it's a that's total, what we want. It's we a want total to hang out the Tashi to have a, a car that hovers off the ground. It's a total yeah. you know. It, yeah. it's like oh, it's, it's not as good how, as the, the one that boring, this other guy got. Right? How boring is is you know how boring is it to just be, be stuck on this planet where well, you have laser guns and you, you even have, have Luke whining like oh I have to go get some power converters well yeah he's looking at a floating spaceship yeah. to pick up some power converters which yeah, robot exactly. chicken turned into strippers <laughs> hey welcome to Tashi Station gentlemen get your get your credits out it's time for the power converter <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I still maintain that was one of the best pickup lines I ever heard is like hey girl want to come with me to the Tashi Station and get some power converters like Adorable. That's adorable. I will talk to you. Wow. <laughs> Come on. That's that, cute. That, no, it is. That, that would totally work at like the Star Wars celebration. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> it's like I, I can't imagine. Someone stayed at my house who was there in the theater when the trailer was shown and like that whole like show and everything. Did and it have that bo and corn chip smell that's always at like every single nerd event? I didn't ask about that. But, like <laughs> the the reaction to the trailer, like he was saying, like just strangers like looking at, like and hugging and crying, like <laughs> like right there in, in the audience is like I didn't know the guy next to me, but we looked at each other. We had this moment. There's like, tear, like I see there's tears streaming down his face, and I got tears streaming down my face, and we just hug because we like there's just so much emotion building up. Yeah, I lo- I love that shit. I love yeah, when people lose they, their minds. I, I, I mean, in a crowd like that, it, 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 as much as what the, tri- the 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 prequel trilogy turned into, and how disappointed we all were, 
I'm trying to think back honestly and objectively to those first few teasers of of, of Phantom Menace. And, oh, the first and, Phantom Menace teaser is fucking incredible. Yeah, yeah. And, this is going to be the greatest I, movie ever. And yeah. how I felt, right, right. And I remember I bugging felt. my parents. I was like, "We have to go opening night. We have to see it." Blah blah blah. And my parents were like, "Okay, okay." But it was like every single day. I'm like, "We have to go opening night. I have to see it like right now." You know? <laughs> yeah. And I, they were they were good about but it. But I'm they feeling did take me. I'm feeling <laughs> this sense of optimism. I, a new hope, if you will. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, about about episode seven and, yeah. and everything I'm seeing and every little thing that comes out, you know, Gwendolyn Christie, and mm-hmm. the, you know these these things, and that new keep, lightsabers, these little things keep yeah. happening that add to the magic, add to the positive, you know, the hopeful feeling. So. Mm-hmm. They're, but they're, it's also like battered wives. You know, it's like, <laughs> right, right. He's just, he's just a little angry. Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it'll Star be different Wars, this time. Star Wars will be di- it, it can be different this time. Star Wars can be so loving, <laughs> <laughs> so kind to me. You don't know it. You don't know Star Wars like I do. He promised he's gonna change. Yeah, Star Wars promised it's gonna change. <laughs> I do still remember the exact mm-hmm. moment when I'm watching this grainy little quick time. It was probably like 640 by 280, like mm-hmm. on my browser, and like the fog, and you, it's like okay, fog, okay, something's happening, and you see like the, the like the the trot of the the Gungans coming through the fog, and you're like, oh shit! Yeah, the big thing <laughs> is that, that that thing, the 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 hovercraft coming up over the crest of that hill. Too, oh yeah, mm-hmm. you know that has all the the robot, the the the, the battle droids, in it, the battle droids, in yeah. It. And um, there, there, there. The, the craziest part is like the funny thing about trailers is a trailer by its nature can be it's so ambiguous. It's that mm-hmm. same like the less information you have, the more mystique. Same with the Boba Fett thing. Sure, like, sure. The trailer is the Boba Fett of like that whole mm-hmm. paradigm, and it's mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. so in a, in an alternate universe, there's a Phantom Menace with the same fucking trailer. But it's actually a good movie. Yeah. That's what fucks me. I right. want to go to there. <laughs> like, how do we get there? Well, there's there's the and, and fan of hope that there's the same alternate edits. universe where there's actual equality and yeah. yeah. I was gonna <laughs> say like I I've brought this up in conversation with a couple people like you know we're um, our closest uh, ape like whatever is the chimpanzee and chimpanzees solve their problems with violence. Whereas bonobos, who are our second closest, solve all of their problems with sex. So I want to go live in the Yay! alternate universe where yeah. we're more closely yeah. related yeah. to bonobos yeah. and we're just banging each other all the time. You know, uh, like, if you have two guys, like, in that stereotypical, like, bar fight scenario, it's like, oh, come at me, bro. Like, resolution, fuck. I feel so much better. Resolution, Handle. come at me, bro. Yeah. Because, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like, how are you going to fight with yeah, somebody they, after they, you they just unzip, came? Un- unzip, touch swords. Like, <laughs> no, no, I mean, it. come at me. Me, bro. Yeah, <laughs> it's like uh, ass it's, in the air. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. There, are, there are experiments. People are trying to recreate that sort of bonobo society. Yeah. How do I sign up for this? I'm down. There's a place called Timera in Portugal. It's uh, not quite full on uh, bonobo, like, but there it is. It's a contained community that's focused on sustainability and permaculture and like mm-hmm. a sustainable village model. But for them, it's not primarily about the permaculture or like the aquaponics or whatever it's Mm -hmm. about the relationship between people Mm. and they like start there and they have just full radical accountability with everybody and there's Mm -hmm. no like so everybody's like sort of intermingling and fucking each other and like Mm -hmm. forming relationships but it's all very safely oh yeah but it's all germaphobe right it's all like (laughs) 
my friend's shooting a documentary there right now, and oh, everything cool. he says about it is brilliant. Yeah, Ian McKenzie, Tamara, uh, it's coming out soon. I was filming it right now, and like they, they just do it a totally different way. And mm-hmm. everything, every relationship that forms, there's very few kept secrets. Mm-hmm. It's really wild. Where like if you like start like having a relationship with someone everybody knows about it yeah. and they all celebrate it together okay. and there's like a, it's not quite not exactly group therapy but group accountability where it, like everybody in the village comes together it's almost and someone like a, gets up and they like spill their guts like, it's almost yeah. like, like a really feeling. like a one step beyond polyamory like a polyfidelity type thing yeah. where, mm-hmm. where everybody knows everybody else and they and all raise the kids knows. together yeah oh that yeah it's that's definitely like, a polyfidelity situation or like a communal communal living situation it can be yeah. done and yeah. they like they have it a school where awesome. people come to like learn these principles they want to create a model that can be replicated elsewhere yeah. there's villages in Africa and I don't know the specifics of it but I know there's villages in Africa where they're, they're made Patriarchal and, and uh, women are completely, they're the property owners and they're also the kind of um, the forefront of all the relationship dynamics mm-hmm. and women will have multiple partners and, and they do the whole thing where they've got a little thing hanging on the door to let their other, you know, their other gentlemen callers know, hey, I've got company tonight, come <laughs> yeah, back, yeah. Come back <laughs> another night. It's and like the college equivalent of like the sock on the door right, in right. the dorms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sounds like a great way to run things. Yeah. 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 I'm in. Tie a yellow ribbon around my trouser tree. Um, <laughs> uh, so, uh, we haven't talked, Brian, about about kind of what you do or what what, oh, yeah. what kind of projects you work on or what kind of oh, things sure. you're, you're working on. We got balls deep into Star Wars again, which is totally fine. Yeah. It happens. <laughs> All, every conversation is actually about Star Wars and everything else is digression. <laughs> Fact. <laughs> No, I uh, I went to school for animation. I was really involved in the documentary animation world for a while. Mm-hmm. I did some uh, stuff for PBS, some stuff for Nova. Uh, I was a producer for an animation studio that did. You were doing animation for doc, like science documentaries yeah. and stuff. Awesome. Yeah, awesome. and I um, and then I did a uh, explainer video, like those cute startup like new app or whatever, and they have like a cartoon that shows you the problem that you have and then the app solves the problem and it's like hi like, I'm Mr. DNA yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it, the cute spare no expense I, I made one of those cute like startup videos sure. and uh, the the startup that I did it for they were very much in the starting phase and they only had a few employees and they were like we don't have an in-house designer we love this video you made for us can you make this banner ad can you make this landing page can you and then they just kept giving me work freelance and I was still doing documentary animation, and they kept giving me that work. And they um, they eventually got VC funding. They got millions of dollars and like got a real office, and they kept giving me work. They offered me full-time back then, and I was like, no, I want to be an animator. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and then uh, I was still in the documentary world, got started working for Nova and things like that, and did some great work. But then the documentary studio sort of uh, folded, and then right around that time was when... Uh, this company, Abine, the online privacy company, they offered me a full-time job mm-hmm. as their creative director. Just mm-hmm. like, come on board and uh, let's do this. So they, uh, it's online privacy app. We have this app called Blur. Mm-hmm. It's a password manager and a privacy manager where it blocks tracker cookies. Um, you can generate strong passwords, autofill your passwords. You can generate, um, you know, I have like throwaway email addresses. Sure. A lot of people use Mailinator. Um, this one, or like 
like how you have for Craigslist, you have the forwarding address whenever you make a Craigslist post. Sure, mm-hmm. this is like that, but it happens right in the form. Like you, like a website wants your email address, so you click into the form, and it's just like bloop. You either you, like, do you want to give them your email address, or do you want to give them a masked email, where it's just like a, a gobbledygook forwarding address, and you can click that, and they they get the scrambled one, and they think that's your email address. So they keep sending stuff there, and it forwards to you. But it's like this middleman where if you don't like what they're sending, you just like delete the middleman delete the masked email and they can never contact you again because they never had your real email in the first Fantastic. place. Fantastic. Mm. And it works for credit cards too where you make uh, you get a temporary credit card number sort of. It's it's like creating a gift card on the fly where you tap into the credit card field and it's like bloop do you want to use your real card or a mask card? And if you make a mask card then it's like how much is the purchase? It's like well it's $25. So they give you a brand new credit card number that's only worth $25. So it's almost like a, like a cash card or a gift card. Yeah. yeah. And you make it in two seconds. Mm-hmm. And then, so they, they don't get your real credit card number, so they can't lose it. And then they, if they, if it's a less than trustworthy online merchant and they, uh, they try to charge you more than they said they were going to charge you, it's not going to work because it only works for the amount of you agreed upon. So you're going to, like it eliminates fraud and hidden fees and that sort of stuff. Fantastic. And, yeah, it's fun. I've been with them for a few years now, and it's great because it's a, like a cause that I believe in. Like yeah, privacy people, and all that. People, I mean, it is kind of funny sometimes when we get we get a lot of positive feedback from people who get it, and but then we, we get a lot of positive feedback too from people like, oh, I'm so glad I got this thing, and now the NSA can't find me. Like, <laughs> well, <laughs> don't know about that. <laughs> Nobody is safe from the NSA. Sorry. Yeah. Well, I knew there'd be a back door. <laughs> but yeah, I, so that's my day job, and in my spare time, I'm uh, I'm writing a graphic novel. I'm working on a cartoon pilot. I'm working on my friend's TV show, and then I do um, I do I write essays for blogs about like big picture universe psychedelic philosophy kind of stuff. And then, awesome. And then I do um, this. Uh, I sort of fell into this altar keeping stuff. Like I kept, I got into. You know, I went to art school, did a lot of mushrooms, read a lot of weird books, and uh, like you do, like you do, as, as you do, <laughs> and um, and I started, uh, I started like keeping sacred space and trying to understand what that means, and uh, so I set up an altar in my room, and I just started messing around with it, and then like six years later, it's become like this, like I, I it, it's been a place for meditation, a place for ritual, a place for like reflection. And it's like, it is ultimately mysticism because I'm not following anybody's rules. I'm making it up as I go. And uh, when I, the further I got into it, the more I realized I was getting to like almost a caveman state where before anybody invented a religion, it was like the first human markings we have are uh, notches on a turtle shell marking the, um, the phases of the moon. And that's where I want to be. I mm-hmm. want to be in that place of like a human being who has no reference point and is just relating to the universe uh, and trying to to work it out, but like on your own terms. Like I don't know much about astrology, but on my altar I have thirty candles as, that work as a lunar calendar, and every day I move the candles like a game board. So here's today, and then there's the full moons and like these days, and I can track the cycles of the moon and see how like it affects like hormone levels and like my mood and like, like understanding like, developing an intimacy with the moon without reading a book for somebody to tell me what the moon's all about as far as emotionally or existentially. Okay. Um, and then, uh, tarot enters into it too. Like I'm big into divination and the dance of the archetypes and all that stuff. 
Uh, I, I'm a huge tarot geek. I've been seriously nerding out on it. I have a for box a while now. full of tarot cards somewhere, and I need to find you them. You never told me that. I have a box. Uh, when I was working at a book warehouse, I was <clears throat> collecting items. Um, <laughs> uh, and one of the things that I was collecting was various different types of tarot cards. And mm-hmm. I have, I don't, I don't believe in divination. I don't uh, subscribe to any any of that. Uh, but I, but I am fascinated by the um, the history of it and oh, yeah. the the um, kind of the cultural impact throughout history of those mm-hmm. sorts of things. And 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 again, very much along the same philosophical lines that you just laid out. The the. The 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 the, in, the the interest in how people use random objects or objects with a random a randomizer built in, yeah. if you will, a, a rudimentary randomizer built in, well, like, in order to relate and or interpret events in their lives or their relation to. The universe. I do believe mm-hmm. that on a Carl Sagan, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson level, you know, we're all made of star stuff. We're all mm-hmm. made of the same elements and are therefore connected at an elemental level. Now, whether that elemental connection at that microscopic, beyond microscopic uh, level has any formal sentient ties connections beyond what we're you know what fires our dendrites i don't know um and it's interesting to think about and it's interesting to explore but i'm pretty lazy about that (laughs) and don't spend a lot and also kind of busy and don't spend a lot of time thinking about that stuff on a on a regular basis but it's definitely something you have to make time for yeah yeah of course of course and i have no time for anything yeah Yeah. barely have enough time to keep this juggernaut (laughs) (laughs) like i i make time to you know pull through tarot cards before bed do meditation and all that stuff because like we kind of do the same occulty weird stuff Mm -hmm. you know but like i feel like if we're going to talk about the tarot you can't talk about tarot and the symbolism of it without talking about the subconscious sure because our subconscious speaks in symbols that's Mm -hmm. what dreams Mm -hmm. are so for Mm -hmm. me Mm -hmm. like you know i i have read what you know these symbols mean according to all the books and the official blah 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 and all that stuff but i'll just like pull three cards and i'm like okay symbol 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 what's the first thing that bubbles to the surface like what is my subconscious trying to tell me and i feel like that's a more useful way to sure. use the tarot, and then that's being tapping like, into your own buy the book, right? Yeah. That's not that's not an out there talking to you. That's yeah, an, it's you're my talking, mind you're talking, talking to me internally. To yeah, you. yeah, and yeah. that's that's one of the things about like um, any sort of magic theory is belief is a tool. You know, mm-hmm. it's very much all in your mind, and you know, it's almost uh, like a sugar pill effect you know like if i believe that you know this like lighting of candles and wearing of robes and you know like doing the enochian hokey pokey will like (laughs) make this thing manifest in the world you know like you're doing all of those rituals to keep your conscious mind occupied while you have whatever symbol you're focusing on 
seep into your subconscious. And so then your subconscious is like, oh, this symbol means that this is going to happen. Okay, got it. Let me start rearranging things in your head to, like, make this happen at some point in the future. So it's yeah, mostly, you're kind like... you steering your own subconscious yeah, to, to achieve a goal. It's yeah. brain hacking. Sure, like, that's sure, how I explain sure. it to people. Like, think of your brain as a computer. You have all of this code that's just going on in the background, and you have, you know, these viruses from the culture, like fear, like shame, like, you know, potentially things like sexism and racism. Like, you didn't ask for those to be installed they're just there by virtue of growing up in you know western society so a lot of um like chaos magic or you know western ceremonial magic things like that it's a way to install code that you want and let a script run in the background that you want that can actually do something helpful for you or help you achieve a goal you know so like thinking of it in you know those computer terms to me was what finally made it click Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. yeah yeah, I feel like divination isn't ever about uh, predicting the future. It's always about what's here right now. And a, mm-hmm. a tarot spread is not like, here's what's going to happen, or here's a secret being revealed. It's that you lay out the cards, and the cards are like this existential mirror that reflects you back at yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. like in that moment, like it doesn't even matter what the books say, because you look at that card and like you feel something and that's right that's what's exactly true in that moment right exactly it's, it's whatever bubbles to the surface it's like i've been i've been on a journey with it for a, only a couple of years now and it's already like like reading it for myself and studying the history of the cards it's just like it, and it like what it does is they're it, it's a tapping into your your personal unconscious and also the collective unconscious where they all like it's everybody's personal unconscious overlapping and all of the sort of strange attractor chaos nodes where like all of it swirls together to this point like any it seems like random data but there's any set of random data always like curls towards these strange attractors and the archetypes are kind of in that way you have the chaos of human society but there's always these patterns that emerge no matter what like there's always going to be uh, these rises and falls in prosperity. There's always mm-hmm. going to be heroes and villains, and like uh, these events in your life. So the tarot is really trying to be a um, a microcosm of human life. Like the all like mm-hmm. here's the the 56 things that like 56 like elements of the human experience, things that could happen to you. Yeah, and like there's. There's a lot more, but these are just, like, the general categories. In the like, same way, like, the periodic table or an alphabet. It's an alphabet or a periodic table of experience. And when you lay it out and, like, start moving them around, you see patterns where uh, you never would have found them thinking, like, like working it through, like, in a linear way. Tara's almost like a, the, the shuffling makes it this nonlinear engagement mm-hmm. with... The force of the, the randomizer. Yeah. The randomizer. Yeah. Well, the randomization is everything. One of my absolute favorite books on the tarot, it's um, Joseph Campbell and the Tarot. And it basically goes through Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey, first using all the cards from the Major Arcana, which mm-hmm. is like, you know, the first uh, 22. Those are like the quote unquote big ones. And then it goes through The Hero's Journey with the rest of the cards. So mm-hmm. it's like breaking down the tarot and all these archetypes into a story, you know, and into one that, like, we as humans have been telling, like, since forever, you yeah. know? And like, we, it's the whole hero with a thousand faces thing. You can apply it to Star Wars. You can apply it to the tarot. Right. And it's... The funny thing is, a lot of the scholarship shows that back in the day, 
that like tarot wasn't used for divination until like the no, late, late 1800s. It was a card game. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was never, you could say it, it was like people have theories that it was actually the secret, like secret knowledge that was passed down for generations. <laughs> but the first time anybody said that was in like 1860. So it's yeah. like late 1700s. So, but that doesn't, um, that doesn't, it, even if it, like it, like most likely was just a card game that people attached this significance later on. But what that shows is the way that um, these archetypes sort of... It's like a distillation down. It's like where today we understand so much about the collective unconscious and all these archetypes. But they were there back in the day. They were like waiting to be revealed. And people were messing around with these cards. And it was popular. And, but, uh, and then it became like more popular. And people started writing books about how important these cards were. Nobody really understood why. But it was really like this invisible force that moved our lives and like take like taking cards and just like pasting it onto this invisible like <laughs> form and like eventually the cards the more you like iterate and like peel them off and like paste on new cards it's like you start getting more definition of this formless thing that affects our lives whether you yeah. realize it or not we all play out the dance of the archetypes yeah. in our own lives well and it's funny too because if you look at like uh occult history so many people have like written and rewritten the tarot and the meanings behind the cards okay. and like all this stuff like well, alistair or, or crowley a, like astrology too right? yeah the, the, the astrological symbols and and everything was a month off of you know two three hundred years ago than where it is now and yep. and and so it, it's all evolved and changed but ever since the dawn of man ever since there were Ever since there were rulers trying to figure out the best way to keep people in line to, so that they could, you know, have food and, and shelter and, and keep everybody from killing each other and mm -hmm. defending other tribes from coming and killing them, they've always had a magic man, a wizard, a, a, a soothsayer, a person to say, hey, somebody who at one point looked up at the sky and said, hey, I saw that same point of dot of light in the sky at the same time, the same day last mm -hmm. year. And they've been building, you know, giant calendars, you know, Stonehenge and pyramids and blah, blah, blah. It's been going on for thousands of years and probably for, you know, 10,000 years since the, since the dawn of, of, of who we consider to be us now. And, and just people who noticed patterns mm -hmm. and then trying to extrapolate those patterns. Because if you go from a macro, a macroscopic level all the way down to a microscopic level, you see the same patterns. You see mm -hmm. objects rotating around mm -hmm. other objects to create structure. Yeah. And it goes all the way down to the microscopic, you know, the most minute particles that we can, you know, identify mm -hmm. all the way up to the movements of, of universes around each other or, or galaxies around mm -hmm. one another or even the, the knowledge, that the, 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 the concept that there are multiple universes all rotating around one another yeah. and, you know, goes down to the theory of we're all just living in the in a, in a molecule of, a, of a, some giant being's toenail or whatever. And, and <laughs> it's, it's toenails all the way down. It's yeah. toenails all the way down. And, and it's the same thing. Yeah. And, and it's it's just the recognition of patterns and, hey, and... and Pretty much well, everybody are built to recognize patterns, right? Yes, mm -hmm. we're, we're we've evolved to do so, and mm -hmm. and um, and we all basically have these cyclical phases, patterned phases in our lives, and patterns that we repeat, incidents that we relive, traumas that we re re we relive, happy times that we relive, and we just mm -hmm. live them over and over mm -hmm. and over again because we're patterned-based beings and life itself is a pattern-based thing. It starts right. it starts from a very from a, you know, a, a sperm and an egg and goes through this <laughs> these phases and then goes back to death and then the whole thing starts all the way all the way over again because that 
death feeds another thing, which feeds another thing, which feeds another life, and it just keeps going, in a, and it patterns over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. What's really fascinating for me, at least uh, with astrology, is comparing and contrasting how each different like culture or civilization looks at you know these same like planets. Um, for example, like in Western astrology, you know the sun is the center, and like that's you know your core being. But in Vedic astrology, it's the moon that's your core being, and like. You know, in Western astrology, Venus is the planet of love and taste and beauty and good things that feel nice. Whereas with the Aztecs, Venus was the planet of war. Like, you did not start a battle, you did not go to war, you didn't do anything unless the position of Venus was right, and you Mm -hmm. were Aztec. So, like, just being able to see how different cultures interpret, you know, symbols is, like, so fascinating for me. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I made my own. I'm making my own tarot deck from cards that I pick up off the ground, and now, and it actually, I built the Major Arcana out of uh, Empire Strikes Back trading cards. Funnily <laughs> enough, and that was the really uh, wild part of my magical practice and with the altars is that around the same time I was getting into altars, I was getting into uh, the tarot, but I, I like I only got a couple reads. I didn't think much of it, but then. Uh, at some point when I was going to school, I was walking down the street with my brother and we come across this deck of playing cards just sprawled out on a street corner. It's just like all, all the cards, like they had fallen out of someone's car or something and they were just like all over the place. And I was like, huh, this is an interesting little scene. Just a whole deck of cards just splayed out on the ground. And I, without even thinking, I just like picked one up and I put it in my pocket and went about the rest of my day. But then like the next night, I was back in Boston, uh, and with my friend, we were uh, in an alleyway in Boston. We were dumpster diving uh, pizzas from this place downtown. And it, like, like you do. Yeah, it, it was it was funny because it wasn't, um, like, you know, you go to, like, a pizza place that has pizza by the slice, and they got them under the heat lamps ready to go. Mm-hmm. They got cheese, pepperoni, and a special of the day. Is, like, the dumpster end, diving, like, a college hippie rite of passage or, like, an art school thing? Because, like, a, I did it's that a, in it's college a bro- It's a broke well. college student. <laughs> But like the they they have those pizzas under the heat lamp all day, and then you hit the end of the hours and they toss them. Well, yeah, they they didn't they barely toss them. They take them and they place them into pizza boxes, mm-hmm. and they like stack the pizza boxes, just wrap it in a trash bag and so place could, it you on find, the dumpster. So you just like grab it, and it's like four fresh pizza. pizzas ready to go. It's nice. ridiculous. Nice. We did that all the time, and um, and so I was going down the alley the day after this card thing and like I look down at the ground in this alleyway and I see there's another playing card I'm like oh huh remember yesterday there was that whole like all the cards splayed out interesting and I reach down and I pick it up Same. and I put it in my pocket and I'm like wait a minute if I keep doing this for the rest of my life I'm eventually gonna have a fucking full deck of cards this is crazy like wouldn't that be like a cool uncle thing to do like <laughs> Like, oh, hey, check it out. I got yeah, this. Yeah, I get this deck of trading cards, or <laughs> deck, deck, of, deck of playing cards I've been yeah. collecting my whole life. Yeah, like check it out. They're all different. <laughs> I like how it went from weird uncle to, like, creepy uncle. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I always go, you want to see something? Uncle, yeah, yeah. Look at it. You like this watch? I got it off a dead guy. What are you crying for? What are you crying for? <laughs> you keep, you stop crying, I'll give you the watch. That was quick, you little bastard. <laughs> so. uh, but then, so four, five years later, I'm four cards away from finishing this deck. And I've got, like, so many duplicates and triplicates, but... And it, it started off as, like, this cool uncle thing to do, but then uh, what really started to trip me out was that um, I kept finding them more and more. And 
uh, this one time I was walking towards the subway and I looked down and I see this card and it's not a playing card. It's weird. It's like a king holding a sword and there's like a coin and like the number 12 and it's like from probably from some board game, but it's very much like this king holding this sword. And, um, so I put like, Oh, that's interesting. I'm not sure how it fits into my deck, but it's a card and I found it on the sidewalk. So I guess I got to, uh, keep it. And I put it in my pocket and I keep going. And I get to where I'm going, which was uh, the Massachusetts State House, where I was testifying before, not testifying, but like public comment to the Joint Finance Subcommittee on Revenue, which was having public comment, a public hearing on a bill that was going to legalize weed in Massachusetts, treat it the same as alcohol. Mm -hmm. And this was the first time in American history that a bill to regulate same as alcohol had made it far along enough in the legislative process to get to a public hearing. To a public hearing, yeah. So the the head of normal was there, the head of uh, uh, law enforcement against prohibition was there, like all the head honchos and legalization showed up for this thing to make their comments. So it's like a really highly charged uh, meeting and everybody can sign up to have 10 minutes to make their case. And I prepared a thing, like I sign up, and like the head of normal goes on and like and then they like they, they put all the like big shots up first and then it was like the rest of the rabble get with, uh, everybody there was just <laughs> the like ham- so the hamburglar shows up yeah <laughs> so everybody there was like uh like yes weed awesome there was one guy who was anti and he was hilarious but um <laughs> reefer madness much yeah, yeah it was like it was, it was like a, like 100 120 people in the room showed up just for this and there's one guy who like is against it. It was it was great. He was so outnumbered. <laughs> but then I get up and I give this really great speech and it goes over so well and everybody's cheering and like the 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 uh, rep representatives are impressed. They're asking me all these questions. So I'm like really on the top of my game as like public speaking, making a case, like standing up for what I believe in. I'm like this is it. I'm like fucking on cloud nine and. I get home and I'm like, oh, and I'm thinking to myself, oh yeah, kind of tarot's kind of interesting. Let's see what that's all about. It's a king with a sword. I know there's something in tarot that's like, like swords, whatever. And I get home and I, so I look it up, and um, the king of swords is all about mastery of, like intellect, intellect, and, and standing up for what you believe in, yeah. like fighting for a cause and uh, fighting the good fight, speaking truth to power. In the traditional associations with the card, at least in the book that I read, it was like, that was it. And I was just like, that card was in my pocket the whole time I was doing that. So it's like, it's like, oh shit. Like, like a, that, it, it's, it's a coincidence, but what ma- like magic and synchronicity is about is like useful coincidences where from then on, it was like every card I picked up sort of in the interpretation that had something to say about what was going on. So it became this really spooky, well, it still is this really <laughs> spooky, like, and when people people would find cards for me and they bring them to me and that card like I was on a road trip with my best friend it was like the like we were on the road for a month and he found a card in in like when he showed up for this road trip and the card was all about like going on a journey like an actual like physical journey like exploring new horizons both physical and and mental so it's like I I don't have an explanation for that but it's um that's the sort of like dancing on the edge of probability that sure, keeps sure. me in the game. Right, where, there you go. yeah, like, uh, because that's that's the most exciting thing about something like divination or magic to me is like 
everyone's lives are like everybody has those moments where it's like this can't be a coincidence right and we can rationalize all we want but our lives are poetry you can't escape the fact that your life is a beautiful work of art full of narrative it's not just firing neurons it's not just like bouncing billiard balls bouncing off of each other there is something that makes our lives right. great there's, a, there's an organization to it mm-hmm. there's there's right. a there's a structure to it it doesn't speak in words. It doesn't speak in mm. words. It doesn't. The structure itself does not have sentience. Right. It is not that that structure is not self-aware, but it exists. And it is and, us. And, and we are is. the sensory and we organs are part of, it. of this larger organism. Yeah. Again, we're we're all compo- built of components of stars, and mm-hmm. everything we see and everything we touch and everything we witness is all came from one place. Yeah. And. It's really, it's starting a dialogue with that. It's like you you talk and it talks back. And that's what all that stuff is about to me. It's tapping into that, that spark or origin of everything. It's it's accessible to anybody. It's also when you become aware of it, you start to notice it more. Like for me, it was like, oh, these things have always been happening around me. I'm just now aware of it like I can I can it's like see buying them. a certain brand of car and then you notice how many of those yes, cars exactly. are on the road like I see Honda Fits everywhere yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. So. like once you start looking for it you notice it's literally everywhere yeah, yeah. Well, we're at an hour and 26 Woo. by really fast <laughs> um, this has been fantastic so uh, plug your stuff tell us where people can find you online if you have any uh, samples or, or uh, you know, galleries or portfolios. Online. Yeah, uh, I for anyone who's going to the Lightning in a Bottle Festival at the end of this month, uh, um, I will be teaching a class about altar keeping uh, at the Mystery School stage Friday at 10 a.m. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you go to LIB, please come check that out. I'm also uh, you, I'm pretty accessible on Facebook. I don't have a fan page, but uh, my personal page on Facebook, I do everything public and I treat it like my blog so look up Brian Duffy on Facebook you'll find me I'm the weirdo with the crazy multicolored jacket but um <laughs> uh and yeah I, I might as well kick my own ass and say brian-duffy.com because I have it like 80% ready to go and uh, by the time people listen to this hopefully I'll get it set up so cool that's a nice little kick in my own pants this Excellent. is going up tomorrow right yeah it's going up tomorrow well, then I guess get I get, 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 get on that shit yeah, <laughs> yeah. so kitty um, you can find me at kittybrowndesigns.com. That's where all of my graphic design stuff lives. You can also find me on Facebook as Kitty Brown. Um, pretty easy to notify, find me. I have purple hair, for fuck's sake. Um, <laughs> you can also find me on Twitter as Kitty Brown. And I'm at St. Michael on Twitter. That's S-A-Y-N-T-M-Y-K-L, rather. You can find (laughs) us online as something2xp everywhere. Uh, Please subscribe and review us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter. Like us on Facebook and Google+. Check out our blog. Please listen to past episodes. Get the numbers up. That's on WordPress. Email us at something2xp at gmail.com. And remember, please be kind. The Something Something Experience podcast was conceived and produced by Michael John Simpson. This week's co-host was Kitty Brown. Intro music, Ways to Change Faces, and outro music, Scorpio 37, was written, produced, and provided by the talented Sebastian Ciceri. You can find us everywhere online as Something2XP. Please subscribe and review us on iTunes, WordPress, and YouTube. Please follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook and Google+. 
email us as something2xp at gmail.com. We invite your feedback. Please be kind.